Well, we'll be all right if the Lord be on our side. We'll be all right if the Lord be on our side. We'll be all right if the Lord be on our side. And the Lord is on our side. Lecture two. So I want to read you guys a story. It's a short story. Don't worry. I didn't write it myself, so it's actually good. Once upon a time, there was a man who thought he was dead. A man who thought he was dead. His concerned wife and friends sent him to the friendly neighborhood psychiatrist. Which is a good call. The psychiatrist determined to cure him by convincing him of one fact that contradicted his belief that he was dead. The psychiatrist decided to use the simple truth that dead men do not bleed. By the way, I don't know if that's actually true. Anyway. He put his patient to work reading medical texts, observing autopsies, reading journals, and etc. After weeks of effort, the patient finally said, All right, all right, you've convinced me. Dead men do not bleed. Whereupon the psychiatrist struck him in the arm with a needle, I think that's illegal, and the blood flowed. The man looked down, confused, and exclaimed, Good Lord, dead men do bleed after all. The point of this story is the man had presupposed that he was dead, and no amount of evidence was changing that. No amount of evidence was going to change that. Why is that? Why do you think that is? It's because that man in this story, and it's true for every dead man that does not believe in Jesus Christ, is not neutral. They're not just waiting out there for someone to come along and push them in one direction or the other. They're not neutral. You understand what I mean by that? They're not neutral. This is a problem because we have an issue of false expectations. False expectations. Unbelievers will expect you to be intellectually neutral. Unbelievers will expect you to be intellectually neutral. Unbelievers will expect you, as a believer, to be neutral. You're not supposed to use the Bible when you talk to them. That's their view. You're not so, I don't believe the Bible. Why are you bringing it to me? I would love to get pulled over. I don't believe in you, officer. Why are you writing me a ticket? It doesn't matter that I don't believe in him. You are to set aside your religious convictions. Whatever you're hearing about at church, whatever you're learning in your small group, you can leave all that aside when you're talking to me, Joe Unbeliever. Set that stuff aside. I'm not going to ask questions on that. They expect you to meet them on their common ground. Now notice, by the way, if it's their common ground, is it common ground any longer? If we go meet, uh, I forget his name, Kim Jong-un in his palace, are we meeting on common ground? No, and we're probably not leaving to meet them on their common ground. Unbelievers will often ask us for historical evidence for the person and work of Jesus, but they will disqualify the Bible as viable evidence. One evening I was at Waffle House studying. I spent a lot of time there. So I'm at Waffle House studying one night, and I've built a relationship with all the servers up there and the cooks, and we're all friends. They all know me. I'm called the Waffle House pastor more often than not. I've counseled and done funerals for them. I mean, for crying out loud, I literally am the Waffle House pastor. Anyway, one of the servers comes to me, and he's always disagreed with what I believe, been very vocal about it. And he tells me that 
I don't know why you believe this. There is no historical evidence that Jesus Christ ever even existed. To which I say, that's strange. I seem to find a whole bunch of documentation in here. (laughs) Show them my Bible. To which he tells me, the Bible doesn't count, it's biased. The Bible doesn't count, it's biased. This is literally like standing before a judge in a murder case and saying, Judge, if we ignore the murder weapon, the motive, the dead body, the video evidence, and the 500 eyewitnesses that saw this man stab the other man in the face, there really is no evidence that murder has occurred. And that's what the unbelievers expect you to do. Remove all the evidence, remove all that is true, remove all that's right, and then explain to me how this is true. So let me walk you through something. This is not in your notes. This is a a, a tangent. I promise it'll be short. All right, I don't promise. That might be a lie, so I'm not going to do it. (laughs) As a Christian, what is your ultimate authority? The Bible, the Scripture. If I ask you to tell me what is true, what should you point to? The Bible. If I don't believe the Bible and you say, okay, well, let me show you something over here that supports the Bible, what's your ultimate authority now? What you're appealing to. See, the reality is when it comes to the nature of truth, if we don't plant our feet somewhere, we will do what's called infinite digression. We'll have to keep appealing to whatever's behind that, whatever's behind that, whatever's behind that. And that's why we have to have something that the word is transcendent, something that is outside of us that we can plant our feet on. We're going to talk a little more about that in a minute. But it's not just unbelievers. It's not just unbelievers. Believers will expect you to be intellectually neutral. Christians will expect you to be intellectually neutral. If you attend an apologetic seminar at the majority of churches, they will tell you that the Bible is not to be used in apologetics. That's the prevailing view. And we wonder why the church is so far lost in the culture. We wonder why the church is viewed as being ignorant in the culture. Well, because we've removed the foundation, the source of truth, and we're still trying to argue for it. Believers will, believers will expect this. The majority of Christians have been duped. The majority of Christians have been duped. And they believe, if the unbeliever wants this, this is what I'm supposed to do. And that's false. We can't use our Bibles. Unbelievers will disagree with it. Yes, they will. Why will they disagree with it? Because they don't believe in the God who wrote it. Guess what? That doesn't mean you put away the Bible. That, the fact that they don't believe the Bible because they don't believe the God who inspired it is actually the root of the conflict in the first place. That's actually where we should be in the conversation. A man once approached me at church on a Sunday morning. I was teaching at a church, I believe it was in Alabama at the time, on a Sunday morning. And he approached me, and he, uh, Rona? No. Okay. <laughs> he approached me and asked me if he could talk to me for just a minute about his co-workers. He went on to tell me that all of his co-workers were unbelievers. All of them were unbelievers, and he wanted to talk to them about Christianity. But none of them were, but none of them believed the Bible. Okay? So he wanted me, and his actual question was, he wanted me to give him some ammo outside of the Bible he can use on these unbelievers. To which I told him, if you're putting aside the Bible, you might as well not talk to him. You might as well not talk to him. We need to, we are told by even Christians, we need to set aside our presuppositions about truth. 
How many of you have heard this? The idea that if two people disagree, what they should do is do the very best they can to lay aside all their assumptions, meet in the middle, and try to objectively look at the problem or look at the topic. Have you, are you familiar with that idea? Okay. It's not possible. <laughs> first off, you can't strip yourself of presuppositions. Okay? First off, the assumption that we should strip ourselves of our presuppositions to be objective is a presupposition itself. So you're already in a contradiction. We need to remove our presuppositions to be able to look at this problem objectively. That's the attitude of most believers and unbelievers. We need to find a neutral ground between us and them. We need to find a neutral ground between us and them. We need to find a point of contact where we're on the same playing field. Now, we're going to talk about this at the very end of this series next week, but there is only one place. There is only one point of contact between the believer and the unbeliever. Only one. You know what that is? God created you both, and you both live in His world. That's the only point of contact. That's the only thing that you have in common. The truth is, no one is neutral. No one is neutral. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter how many times they tell you that I'm objective. They're not. They're lying to you. No one is neutral. The non-Christian is not neutral. The non-Christian is not neutral. That's why he's a non-Christian. Guess what? You are not neutral either. Sitting in this room tonight, you are not objective. You're not neutral. You have agreed or disagreed with everything I've said or parts of what I've said based off what you have presupposed to be true, what you are used to believing, what you have assumed to believe. You're not neutral coming in here. It's not possible. You can't do that. The attempt to be neutral was Adam's fall. Okay, this is why it's such a big deal. It is such a big deal that Christians do not attempt to be neutral for the sake of the unbeliever. It's such a big deal that Christians do not attempt to put away their Christian beliefs for the sake of the unbeliever because that was what caused Adam to fall. That's where it started. That was our first problem. That was our first problem. Adam knew God's word. He knew God said, do not eat of that tree, yet he judged it and acted autonomously. God said, don't eat of this tree. And Adam and Eve looked at the tree and they made the decision apart from what God said. They acted as judge over what was right and wrong. And they made the decision apart from what God has said. And guess what? Anytime as a Christian, you put away your Bible, you don't assume the kingship of Christ, you don't presuppose the existence of the God of the Scripture, you are doing exactly what your father Adam did, and you will fall just as he did. It was Adam's fall. I have a long quote here, but it is worth hearing. When man fell, it was therefore an attempt to do without God in every respect. Man sought his ideals of truth, goodness, and beauty somewhere beyond God, either directly within himself or indirectly within the universe about him. Originally, man had interpreted the universe under the direction of God, but now he sought to interpret the universe without reference to God. Man made for himself a false ideal of knowledge, the ideal of absolute inderivative comprehension. 
That means he could be the first one to comprehend and understand what was happening without God. This he could never have done if he had continued to recognize that he was a creature. It is totally inconsistent with the idea of creatureliness that man should strive for comprehensive knowledge. If it could be attained, it would wipe God out of existence. Man would then be God, and as we shall see later, because man sought this unattainable ideal, he brought himself no end of woe. It's a long quote. Brad will tell you, if you follow my Facebook page, all you see is Cornelius Van Til quotes. Point three, the creator-creature distinction. Why there can be no neutrality. Why there can be no neutrality. I have another quote here. I think this is actually the last quote for this lesson, so if you can just hold on tight for a minute. I know people don't like reading quotes, so (laughs) most people aren't like me. When we think even for a moment about Genesis 1-1, we recognize that the act of creation forms a basic division. On the one hand, there is the one who created, and on the other hand, there is that which was created. Everybody following that? Consequently, a distinction is made between God, the Creator, and God's creation. We shall call this the creator-creature distinction. The distinction between the Creator and His creatures must never be forgotten nor set aside for even a moment, for it is indispensable to the development of biblical apologetics. The Creator-Creature distinction. The fact that there is God and there is what God created. And that's it. That's it. Letter B. God is independent of all. God is independent of all. Now, these are the kind of things that we assume as Christians. We don't even think about it. Yeah, duh. God created all things and that's it. Duh. But we don't often think about the implications of that. What does it mean that God is independent of all? What's next in my notes? Oh, yeah. Most Christians have embraced the false understanding that God is in the clouds, looking down on earth, wishing things could be different. He sits there, waiting and wanting to be asked by someone to help with their problems. For many Christians, though they would never admit this in these terms, God is, in, God is dispensable to the world process. He's only needed in times of disaster or personal trauma. Romans 11 says, For Him and through Him, and to him are all things. That got cut off. It's Colossians 1, 16-17. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is, set bef- and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Creation is from Him, meaning that God created the world out of nothing. It's entirely from Him. Creation is to Him. It exists for His glory and pleasure, not man's, not the creature's, His. Creation is through Him or consists in Him. 
meaning that all creation, all of reality, invisible and invisible, is held together by Him. The earth continues to spin by His will. You continue to breathe by His will. The sun burns by His will. But even more than that, even bigger than that, with implications that we can never understand as creatures, creation itself, reality itself, exists and continues to exist by His will. By His will. God is totally independent of creation. He does not need it. He relies on nothing outside of Himself. He is self-existent. He is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and incomprehensible. He is self-existent. Do you understand what that means? But on the, on the other side, all, everything is dependent on God. Everything, as we just saw in the verses that we were looking at. God is independent of it all, but all is independent on God. Every single thing that has been created, which is to say everything that is not God, could not exist for even a second without the God of the universe sustaining it. Everything. Like I said, we assume this stuff, but we've never thought about what it actually means. You got up this morning, you did your hair, you put your shoes on, you put your contacts in, put your glasses on, you got your clothes ready, and you would not have been able to do any of that without God willing that you get up out of bed and breathe again. All is dependent on God. Everything. Acts 17.25 nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. God is in need of nothing. Okay? Let me be very clear on that. God has a mission, and that is, for, that, is that all of creation would be under the dominion of Christ, would realize the dominion of Christ. Christ is already king over all creation. He's already ruling and reigning. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to him God has a mission to bring all of creation to that knowledge and understanding. And let me tell you, He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need my church. He doesn't need your church. He has called us to be faithful and do it. Be faithful and join in His mission. But He doesn't need any of us. He is God. We are not. Still, even though there is this distinction, I got ahead of me. Something's missing here. I promise I know what I'm doing. Okay, I don't have a clue what I'm doing with this thing. <laughs> Still, God has revealed Himself to man. Number, uh, letter D, number one, is general revelation. God has revealed Himself to man. God has revealed Himself to man. General revelation. Where is this at? <laughs> there we go. General revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, or the handiwork, shows the work of His hands. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Psalm 97.6, The heavens declare His righteousness, and all the peoples, and all the peoples see His glory. We're going to look at this in more detail momentarily, but for now, just notice that in creation itself, God has made Himself known. God has made Himself known. Let me back it up to this diagram I have here. 
this is, a, this is a very important distinction. And the reason that we have this in a diagram, this actually was a huge deal when I was first studying apologetics. This diagram explained tremendously what's going on. To the Christian worldview, you have the Creator. You have God who made all things. Okay? And all creation is dependent. Notice how these lines connect it but are not overlapping. It's connected. It's held together by the independent Creator. Okay, you understand this? The dependent creation is held together, is sustained by the independent creator. While the non-Christian worldview, there may be a creator, and there is creation, and that's all that exists. That's all that exists. Uh, hang on to that illustration, because I'm going to explain why that's a big deal in just a moment. This is what happens when you have slides that are out of order. So far, one time isn't bad, right? Secondly, number two, we see that God has revealed Himself in special revelation. Special revelation. General revelation is the idea that creation reveals God. Creation shows us that the triune God of Scripture exists. We're going to look more at that in just a minute in Romans 1. But that's, the, that's what uh, general revelation is. When you look in the mirror and see yourself, you know that you are made in the image of God. You reflect God. Then there is special Revelation. Special revelation is what Christians most commonly think about when we talk about revelation. We see special revelation in the scriptures themselves. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the scripture, guys. That's the scripture. That's the thing that we so often attempt to put away when we're trying to talk about our faith. So, back to these illustrations. This is why it's a big deal. You have the independent creator that relies on nothing. He is independent entirely. And you have dependent creation that relies totally on him for existence. And then you have his revelation. Through scripture, through nature, through yourself as a created individual... You have the ability to know things. You can know and understand things. You can think. You can learn because you're in the image of God. You have a mind because you're in the image of God. Morality. You can have morals. You know what's right and wrong because you're made in the image of God and He's revealed it to you. And you can think. You can reason. You can have logic. Why? Because God is a logical God. And logic is derived from the mind of God. You can have all these things because you have an independent creator okay, that reveals in reality all of these things to his dependent creation. Okay? Do, you, do you see what this means? This is a huge, huge deal. All of these things are only possible because the independent creator reveals it in reality to the dependent creation. If this isn't there, you don't have these things. So... The non-Christian worldview has man, has man at the center. All non-Christian worldviews, I don't care what it is, atheism, Buddhism, don't care. Harry Krishna doesn't matter. All of them have man at the center. They may have gods, they may not. Darwin may be God, or he may not. Aliens, Bigfoot, who knows? <laughs> who knows? But knowledge, morality, reason, all of these things only exist within the nature of man. Man who's not dependent on anything. Which means there is no foundation for those things. 
Well, we'll be sharpening the axe to cut down old Donner's oak. We'll be sharpening the axe to cut down old Donner's oak. We'll be sharpening the axe to cut down old Donner's oak. For the Lord, he's stronger far. And we all belong to Jerusalem above. 